word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to the trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does the trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in the city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophet. This is God's words. You may be seated. Inside of your announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as we go through this study of uh, the book of Amos this morning. And we begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that we have opportunity, that we have an hour, that we have a moment, that we have a place, and that we have a people, and that especially we have you as our God, our Creator, our Shepherd, our Father. You are everything to us. And as your children, your family, we have come into your presence today to recognize you as all of these things and much more. And at the same time, Father, to, to be transformed ourselves and to be changed ourselves through, through our fellowship, through our interaction with your word, through prayer, through remembering the, the, the meaning of the sacrifice of your son, the Lord's table, but more than anything else, to, to, to be changed because we have come as your family into your presence. Thank you for this moment, Father. And as we press our mind into uh, the book of Amos, this prophecy, this great prophecy, it's our prayer, Father, that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin uh, this morning with a statement that we've been using at, uh, I think, just about 99% of all of the sermons this summer, as, uh, this, this year, as we go through Genesis to Revelation, one book at a time, telling the story of what the Bible is all about. And the statement is this, the Bible is not a collection of random stories but it's one story about God. It's about man and what went wrong, how we introduced sin into the world, and what God is doing to put it back together again. Now, as we enter into, in, in this part of, the, a part of our Holy Words sermon series, we're entering into the early part of the prophetic books. And what we're going to do today is to look at Amos. What we're going to do tonight is look at Joel. And I want to begin with a story that takes place at a championship dart tournament. Uh, back in 2012, there was a championship dart tournament in this large arena in one of the cities here in the United States. And into the middle of this, this dart tournament, there is this fellow, 33-year-old guy by the name of Nathan Gridall, who is famous as a Jesus lookalike. And as he comes into this big arena, people begin to notice and to recognize him as sort of this Jesus lookalike. And one person begins saying, chanting, Stand up if you love Jesus. And another person, and it kind of catch on as more and more people, tens and twenties and thirties, and hundreds of people are, are yelling, chanting, stand up if you love Jesus. And it, by the time they're done, 4,000 people in this arena are yelling, stand up if you love Jesus. Stand up if you love Jesus. Except one guy. And this guy is, uh, is a great dart I don't, I don't, a thrower, flinger, I don't know what you call him. 
but he's, he's international, a guy from Belgium. And in the middle of his match, all of the chanting, stand up if you love Jesus, began to distract him a little bit. And he prompted the security guards to go and grab that guy and to take him out of the arena. And in his post-match interview, after he'd won the entire tournament, he said something like, when he was asked about it, he said something like this, if I ever see that Jesus again, I'll crucify him myself. I guess that God had better not get in the way of that fellow and his plans. Would you agree with the statement that God can be a distraction even to His own people? Even to His own people. That God can be a distraction even to His own people. And that is essentially the problem that is addressed by Amos. Now to give you a little bit of a, a point in history where I think Amos is taking place... Uh, I think that Amos was sent to North Israel around 762 B.C. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, there's reference to an earthquake. Yigal Yadim, one of the great uh, Israeli archaeologists, kind of dates that earthquake somewhere between 765 and 760 B.C. I think Amos is right there in the middle of that. And because Amos is, is, a, is a really, it's not just, it's not a very long book, it's nine chapters but it seems long because it's so rich. It, it is so dense. And what he is trying to, to, to communicate on behalf of God to the people in North Israel, uh, we're really not going to have a chance to really look at it comprehensively. What we want to do this morning is to break it down into three sections, and they'll be like this. It is the problem that Amos described. It is the solution that Amos prescribed and the restoration that Amos prophesied. So we're going to think about Amos in these three words, description, prescription, and restoration. Now, breaking down Amos, and just as, uh, you know, so you don't worry about this too much, this by far is going to be the longest section of the sermon. It's the problem that Amos described, and I think that when you, when you think about what it is that Amos is having to deal with at the, the, the historical context that North Israel found itself, I think that in a nutshell, you can describe what Amos is up against like this. Amos was sent to preach repentance to a people who did not feel the need to do so. He is sent to get people to turn back to God, to, to repent, to, to, to make themselves right with God again at a time when they felt like absolutely there's no need to do that. Amos was sent to call back a people to God who had never thought that they had left His presence. He was sent to North Israel to address a spiritual problem at a time when they thought, you know what, we don't have very many spiritual problems. We're, we're pretty good with God. And the reason for that is that North Israel during this period of time was what they, they were in, what they considered to be a golden era. They were a developing superpower in the world at that time. The boundaries of Israel were really expanding. In fact, Jeroboam II, who is the king of, of North Israel during the time of Amos, when Amos is up there and, and doing his ministry, Jeroboam II ruled more land than any other king in Israel since the time of Solomon. Second uh, Kings chapter 14 is a reference for that. Uh, at the same time, they are developing this gigantic military power. They are growing in their might and in their steel and in, in their ability to defend themselves and, and to muster an army and their weaponry. They are developing a strong military at this time. At the same time, the economy is booming. As these, as these borders are being expanded over the Middle East, they're taking in all of these trade routes. And so there is a lot of money, there's a lot of goods, there's a lot of material resources that's pouring into Israel. 
And one of the reasons that all of this is taking place, the strong military, the strong economy, is because that, that enemy on their border, Syria, is now in decline. Syria, sometimes referred to in your Bible as Aram, sometimes as Damascus, is in decline. And they're not the threat to Israel that they had been in years past. At the same time, Assyria, who is ascending, is not quite the power, has not come quite to full power yet. And so that left Israel alone to, to do all of their, their work, their business, all of their energies, all of their, their, their tactics for, for growing an economy. They could do all of that without being hindered by anybody on the outside. This is a golden era for Israel. Everything looks good. On paper, Israel looks fantastic. But one of the reasons why we did a survey of those kings, you'll remember that we did a survey of all of the kings of the north and what happened in 721, 722 B.C. with Assyria coming and wiping out Samaria and taking all of those people away because of their wickedness. And then those, those two tribes in the south, south Judah, that lasted about 150 years after them, the reason we did that was to remind us that that there, were, there was leadership issues in both places. In fact, this is what is recorded about Jeroboam II, who is king of north Israel during the time of Amos. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Now, what you have happening in those ten tribes to the north, after that split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, after the time of Solomon, what you have happening is sort of a perverse Reaganomics, spiritually speaking, kind of a perverse Reaganomics thing happening. The evil is trickling down from the king and from the leadership of Israel down into all of the people. And what you really have is, is this perfect storm. You have a perfect storm. On the one hand, you have Israel that is being unhindered in, in their development. They, they are getting golden and golden and golden. They are developing military might. They are at peace. They are, developing, they are developing an economy that is causing goods to come in. They are expanding their borders. The trade routes are coming in. People are getting richer and richer and richer. And the army is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. At the same time, on the flip side of that coin, you have... Uh, there is a sense in which God's Word, God's will, even the presence of God Himself in no way is forming any kind of a parameter for the way that all of that growth is to be managed. The people who were supposed to embody and model true compassion and, and to, to be exemplary, to be the models of what justice is all about and mercy and kindness and to be a light to all of the nations about the greatness of the blessing of being in relationship with God and being a part of His, 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 His nation, instead of, of all of those good things, they were becoming darkness more and more and more as the years passed. In fact, in Amos chapter 8, God says this through the prophet. He says, hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Basically, they were, they were going to the temple. They were going to places of worship and they were going, you know, when is this going to be over? When is this going to be done? When are they going to be done sacrificing? When are they going to be done with, with the, the sacrifices and the chanting and the singing and all of that so that we can get back to commerce and do what it is that we want to do? I mean, that doesn't happen today or anything. But when is, when is it going to be over? When is all this time with God going to be over so that we can go and do what it is that we want to do? 
In any society where you have godless economic prosperity, it is going to devastate the poor. Where there is cheating, where there is dishonesty, where there is disregard for human beings being made in the image of God, where you find elitism, where you find terrible stewardship of God's creation, there is also going to be injustice that is rampant through those communities. And that will not go unnoticed by God. God's chosen people in any and every generation who choose godlessness will be addressed. So an example from the New Testament is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is saying, you know what church, the way that you're really handling the Lord's Supper is really, really bad. Instead of when you come to this table and being humbled by the fact that regardless of where you are in in life and what you might have achieved and what what acclaim might have come your way or or what you might have in your your pockets and in your your bank accounts, instead of being humbled by, by the fact that it took Christ dying on the cross to bring you into relationship with God, to do something for you that you could never do. Instead of being humbled and and being brought together, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, all of these different people coming together in humility, what was happening is at the very place where they were to become, become one, they were being separated. And Paul said, that's why some of you are falling asleep. And some of you are are getting sick. And so God sends His prophet Amos with the goal of turning Israel away from Israel and toward Him again. And and to be that light. And to be that that conveyor of, of justice and mercy and compassion and righteousness and holiness and godlessness and the worship of a majestic God. For that in turn to be a light to all of the nations. And one of the ways that Amos attempts to do this is by getting the people to sing. What he does is he starts off with, with, uh, with a verse. And basically all of the verses go like this. The first part of the verse says, Thus saith the Lord. Second part of the verse goes for three transgressions of some nation that he's going to name. And for four, I will not revoke my punishment. And then he goes on in this, this verse to then describe the sin and the punishment by God in terms that no one would disagree with. Basically, they start singing about all of these different nations that for three cents and for four that God's not going to relent from the punishment He will bring on these nations. And mainly it's because of man's inhumanity to man. The way that these nations have treated each other in war and brutality and killing each other, cruelty and all of that sort of thing. And in North Israel, they're singing that and they have acquaintance with Torah, the word of Moses, the writings of Moses. And so as they sing this song, they're going, yeah, yeah, you know what? Damascus and Philistia and Tyre, all of these countries that are named in chapter 1 and chapter 2 as a part of the song, and they're all singing together. No one is denying that all of those sins, God's going to bring the hammer down on top of them. And so what he does is he begins with Damascus, and they sing that verse. It's kind of like row, row, row your boat. It's just the same tune, same verse, just a different, just a different country with each verse. And it's Damascus and Philistia and Tyre and Edom and Ammon, and he's beginning to circle Israel. And he comes up, and it's Judah. And they go, yeah, we really like this song. I mean, Amos is from South Judah, and he's getting us to sing a song about how God is upset with all of the sin of South Judah. And we get that. That's right. God is going to curse them and punish them as well. And then they get to the last verse, which was, Ko Amar Adonai, thus saith the Lord, for three sins of Israel. And for four, I will not relent my punishment. 
And you can only imagine. I mean, they are all stirred up and they're singing and everybody's around the campfire and everybody's singing the same song and they like what they're singing. It sounds so nationalistic and God is on our side. And then Amos gets him to sing this verse about Israel itself. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. In another place to try to get them to turn around in chapter 4, Amos gives them something to think about. To a nation who thought that they were strong and mighty, God asks them, chapter 4, verse 7, Who brought a drought on you three months before the harvest? And who brought the scorching wind and the mildew? Verse 9, also in verse 9, Who brought a pestilence to you? In verse 10, Who brought the plague and who brought the war? Verse 11, Who brought rescue to you through all of this devastation? In an attempt... Not only to help them to see their own sin in relation to God, but the presence of God as certainly more majestic and powerful than where they were headed as a nation. And in spite of all of those questions, Amos chapter 4, verse 6, you have not returned to me. Which now leads to the solution that Amos prescribed, and it can be summarized in two words. He says, Remember and repent. Remember and repent. Stepping out of Amos just for a minute, how, how do affairs in, in a marriage happen? A spouse basically forgets. A spouse forgets, stops thinking about, maybe even begins to, to disremember good times, getting married, honeymoon, scrimping to buy the first house, the coming of children, taking care of each other through good times and bad times, Little gifts to each other, supporting each other, rescuing each other, laughing with each other, tenderness with each other. What happens is that somebody begins to take for granted the other person in that marriage. And what, what does that mean to take somebody for granted? I mean, it sounds, it, sounds, it sounds so clinical. You're taking somebody for granted. But what does it really mean for us? Does it not mean when somebody takes you for granted that they have stopped seeing you as beautiful? That they have stopped seeing you as special. That they have stopped seeing you uh, worthy, valuable, of, of, of beautiful. That all of a sudden they see more of what is not there than they see what is there. And this leads to finding someone or something else that is more fulfilling. And what Amos is saying is that you have to remember. And to turn back and to begin to remember rightly who God is. I mean, when you think about a marriage and there, there's the discovery of the affair, what is it that the spouse normally says? Have you forgotten? Have you not remembered that all of those years you were in school, I was working 80 hours a week to put you through school and now you're going to do this to me? Have you forgotten that I gave you the best years of my life in raising these children and dedicated myself? Or somebody says, what do you mean... You're taking me for granted. Have I not all of these years worked and worked and worked and come home and, 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 and provided? And, and I'm, what that person is saying is that you have forgotten. You have forgotten. 
And when it comes to North Israel and, and God, Amos is saying, you need to remember. In essence, Israel has forgotten about Yahweh's covenantal love and freeing them from Egypt and giving them victory over their enemies and taking care of them in the desert. In Amos chapter 2, verse 10, he says, and this is not the only time that Egypt and the Exodus and all of that is referred to, but Amos says, I brought you, God says through Amos, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised our prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Is this not true, people of Israel? Do you not remember? And twice in Amos chapter 5, God says in verses 4 and 6, Seek me and live. Once you start remembering, turn around and seek me and live. And remember who the Creator is. Verse, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, The Lord is His name. And because that's all in capital letters, you know what God is saying? He's not saying, you need to come back because I'm God. You don't need to come back because I'm, I'm just through brute force and power and sovereignty and your God. He's saying, do you not remember Yahweh? Yahweh. That this is personal. That this is about a relationship. That this is about intimacy between you and between me. And so Amos chapter 5 verse 14, seek good, therefore, not evil that you may live then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as He says He is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. But unfortunately, all these words fell on deaf ears. And when you get to uh, Amos chapter 7, you have the, the priest of Bethel, a fellow by the name of Amaziah, who sends word to King Jeroboam that he's heard the sermons of Amos and that Amos is just full of beans. And he tells Amos, you know what? You need to leave North Israel. You need to go back to those tribes in the south where your home is. Go preach to them. He tells Amos to go back to Judah. And the last verse of Amos chapter 7 says this. Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. And less than a half a century later, the Assyrians who have now powered up in full power they're now in peak form. They come down and they destroy Samaria and they carry those ten tribes into captivity and exile never to be heard from again. They are destroyed. And it's a very bleak moment because here is a ministry that is not ending on a high note. Amos has gone and he has preached and he has done all of the things that God has asked him to do and communicated God's message. And God has given him the words to try to get the people to remember and to repent and to, and to be faithful to Him and to write that relationship and therefore write their lives but it ends in disaster. Which leads to the restoration that Amos prophesied. The very end of the book, Amos says, In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Well, one of the things that you read over and over again in the Bible as, you, as you're thinking about God and about man and about our relationship with Him and what God has done in Christ is that God's will never finds a dead end in history. His word, His will, His, 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 His sovereign will is always going to be done ultimately. 
And just when it looks like David's shelter is going to remain fallen, that the, the breaches in the wall are going to remain, that the wall is going to be torn down and the gaps are going to be there, a son of David is born and comes into the world as Messiah. And he comes as king. And he doesn't come as a king who leads the people away from God, but back to God. And he doesn't separate the nations, but he brings all of the nations back together in him. And God puts back together his mission through Jesus, who is the true Israel. And we go to a funny place in the Gospels like John chapter 11. After the raising of Lazarus, you know, there are some people that have put their faith in him. There are others that go running off to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are, are the common people. And they say, you know what? If, if he keeps doing these miraculous signs, all the people are going to chase after him. And then what we're going to do? What are we going to do about that? And then the Pharisees call together the Sanhedrin and go, what we're doing is accomplishing nothing. And then Caiaphas, who is high priest that year, makes that famous bold prediction that says that it's better for one man to die for the whole nation than for the whole nation to perish because of the one man. And John the Apostle says that when Caiaphas said this, he was prophesying and he didn't know it. And he says in John chapter 11, verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as I preached that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together all of the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them what? One. And then we get to the book of Acts and we travel through the book of Acts and we get to, we, we get to that place where all of a sudden the Gentiles and the Jews are trying to figure out what it means to be church together. And nobody really knows how to handle it. And so Acts chapter 15, all of the big leaders, all the big wigs, they meet in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem conference to figure it out. And, and Paul and Barnabas talk about all of the things that have happened. And Peter talks about all of the things that have happened with the Gentile church. And then James, who is the brother of Jesus, stands up and begins to talk about all of the things that he is hearing and how he sees it in light of God's will. And then guess what he does? He quotes Amos chapter 9. And says that we have known for a very long time that God's will was not going to be destroyed, that it would not find a cul-de-sac or a dead end in history. But in Christ Jesus, what Amos talked about, in, in the son of David being raised up, and all of God's people, not just the Jewish people, but all the people that call on God's name to be brought together as one, we are now seeing that happen in the church. And so the very reason that, that we're here right now has something to do with what Amos said in Amos chapter 9. That all of the people of the world that would somehow be gathered back together and to become one in one body and that one body being Christ. Maybe you've never given your, your life to Jesus who is that true King who will not lead you to injustice and unkindness and, and, and to devastation and to... to to wretchedness in your life and enslavement in your life. But He is the one that brings you back, the true King of Israel, that brings you back to God. And not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And if there are ways that, that our church can minister to you and help these words to come true in your life, even this day, by calling on Jesus as your true King and recognizing His sacrifice as a sacrifice that was in your place, 
that our sin was put on Him so that His righteousness could be put on us. Then we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the very front to talk to you about how that can happen. And we want to call on you to do it this day while it is still today as we stand and sing together. I'd like to stay.